All right, lesson number 10, final lesson on divine judgment. We're actually also calling it the final judgments, and I thought what a fitting way to wrap up 10 weeks of study on divine judgment than to talk about the final judgments that have yet to come. Everything we've covered up until now has stuff that takes place in our lives and in our nation and around the world on a regular basis, but this isn't even the culmination of what is coming. And so... There's a lot to cover. Let's just jump in. The Bible begins in the aftermath of angelic judgment. Of course, that is if you hold the doctrine of the gap theory, which I do, concerning the events that took place between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. So the Bible begins in the aftermath of angelic judgment. Soon follows with the judgment upon all of mankind, the earth, and Satan in the Garden of Eden. And of course, it concludes with divine eternal judgment. So even though we can justly call the Bible a book of hope and a book of salvation, the Bible is also one massive book of judgment. That's just part of it. It's just like weather is part of planet Earth, hot, cold, it's all part of planet Earth. We just take it and go with it. And it it should point out to us that the force of the spirit of lawlessness, it wants us to resist judgment when it is part and parcel of the gospel from beginning to end. Lawlessness says, who are you to judge me? And uh, don't judge me, and, and, but I can judge you. Lawlessness is such a hypocritical attitude, and it is the flavor de jour in schools, in academia, in politics. It cannot be in us. We are law-abiding citizens of heaven and law-abiding citizens of our land. We cannot forget that eternal judgment is one of the six principles of Christ's doctrine according to Hebrews 6.2. So that's one of those principles, principle doctrine, the eternal judgment. And that's what, of course, we're marching towards. Um, All of time and creation is headed toward a final judgment day. And I think after this lesson, hopefully in the middle of it somewhere, I'm going to say something that will cause you to be a lot more mindful of how you live every day. I know that was the effect on me writing it and researching some of this. I, I hit something and I thought, I... I need to be more mindful to live to the fullest every day. I need to be more mindful to make sure everything I do is for the glory of God every day. I need to judge every attitude and everything I do for him every day because there is a judgment day coming, even for the church. We are setting ourselves up for the next dispensation. And what the Bible tells us, it almost mocks you and says, what is your life? It's but a vapor. It's like morning dew. That's kind of... That's the balance of God's word. You are so priceless to him, but your life is but due. (laughs) So anytime you feel cocky, just remember the Lord says, you're like morning dew. You'll burn off eventually. Before the day is even started, you'll be gone. And that really is our life at 85 years, but due. And yet we're so precious to him, but that's the balance and the tension of the scriptures. You are worth the blood of Jesus, but you are just morning dew. And if all we have is 80 years or 85, then you better serve God with everything you've got and be prepared for the next dispensation, which will last 1,000 years, which if you didn't know is a lot longer than morning dew. Amen. The Bible teaches that every human being will answer to God, yet all judgment has been given to Jesus Christ and he will judge without respect of persons. Again, that reminds us that he is the righteous judge. All judgment has been given to the Son. The Father judges nothing according to the teachings of Christ in the gospel. John 5, 27, Jesus says, and hath given him, Jesus, authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. So the authority 
to execute judgment has been given to Jesus Christ. And therefore, he doesn't just save us, he also judges us. Acts 10.42, And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he, Jesus, which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. That is the living and the deceased. And that term, the quick and the dead, is a reference to spiritually alive and spiritually dead. Because the final judgment is when we're all dead in our bodies. So this has nothing to do with having a pulse and biology alive. This has everything to do with being alive spiritually or dead spiritually. He is the judge of the quick and the dead. And then Hebrews 9.27, As it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. We are all marching towards judgment. And yet, as we've covered in the last nine weeks, we do experience the judgment of God upon our lives every moment of the day. Judgment to punish, judgment to promote, judgment to reward, judgment to, to resist. And so we're under constant judgment just as we're under constant laws of physics and laws of chemistry. And when we understand these laws of divine judgment, they don't bug us. We learn how to harness them. We learn how to adjust for them and calculate for them and to, and to incorporate them into our day-to-day -day living. It is when we want to be totally ignorant, like modern culture teaches us, to the judgment of God that we really hurt ourselves. To deny constant judgment of God upon our life is to deny the laws of physics. And to do so is to really court catastrophe and shame. A lot of modern progressives and seminarians teach a progressive gospel that says God no longer judges anything, which is total heresy. And any church that even hints at that, you should run from as hard, fast, and quick as possible. That is to deny the same laws of chemistry and physics and biology. But then again, aren't we in a day right now when all the laws of all creation are being upended, dismantled, and inverted? Amen. It's foolishness. Every human will be subject to eternal judgment. Jesus will judge both the quick, that is the saved, and the dead, the unsaved, after they die. He says the same thing in Timothy and Peter. Because being born again makes an individual a new creature, and being lost makes one a lost creature, each will be judged differently. And we see that between the two judgment seats that all of humanity must appear before at some point in time. Believers, that is born again ones, will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ, while the lost will be judged at the great white throne of judgment. Two different seats of judgment, and yet anybody born of a woman, which is every human being, even a test tube baby is born of a woman because it took DNA from a man and a woman to do the thing. They'll all stand before one of these two judgments. If you're born again, you'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. If you're lost, you'll be judged at the great white throne of judgment. Either way, the Bible begins with judgment, and the Bible will conclude with judgment. So I just, again, I make this point as maybe a student of the word and someone with a science mind. I don't see how Christians can say God doesn't judge anymore. That is the heresy of Unitarianism and a lot of progressive denominational Christianity. And to be honest, a lot of it's coming out of Wheaton College and Fuller Theological Seminary. This is affecting Methodism now and Presbyterians. Uh, and really everything in between. It's a plague and a mold spreading across even word of faith circles. If I can write on this for 10 weeks and not even scratch the surface, 
That's a pretty established doctrine. Amen. Just, just to be clear on this whole thing. 1,000 years will separate the two eternal judgments. There's a 1,000 years difference between the judgment seat of Christ, which is for the New Testament believers, and the great white throne of judgment, which will happen at the end of the 1,000-year reign of Christ. So let's look at the judgment seat of Christ first. The judgment seat of Christ is a place of judgment for all believers. That would include Adam and Eve and Samson and David. This is the place where the believers who look forward to Christ and those after the cross This is where we'll all be judged. This will happen right before the millennial reign of Christ. It is the place where we will be judged for the quality of our Christian service on the earth. And that's what I want us to catch. Because if you're born again, you don't have to worry about the great white throne of judgment. But the the judgment seat of Christ is where we're going to be judged for the quality of our Christian service on the earth. And that means a lot of Christians are going to come up with nothing but a pile of ash a wisp and a vapor because they didn't serve anybody but themselves. And they made excuses why they couldn't find a church to get into. Now let me take a moment here and say this. I'm I'm in the process of working on my book now, Parachutes for Sheep. And I'm talking about why Christians leave churches. And one of the greatest heresies of leaving a church is for a job. And it's so accepted in our culture that you would leave a good church that God has called you to for a job. But if you talk about leaving a job for a church God calls you to in another state, you're considered weird. Except one is the world's wisdom and the other is God's wisdom. The other thing I don't get is folks rejecting a good godly church because they don't like the town it's in. That's called arrogance and pride. Amen. I learned in Indy, if the church is alive, it's worth the drive. If the drive is too far, shut up and move. We're trying to serve God conveniently, and that does not exist. If you can serve God conveniently, you're probably not saved. God expects us to make a sacrifice. And if this day and age, moving to be a part of a better church, if that's the greatest sacrifice you ever have to make, wow, we'll cry you a river in heaven. I don't get it. But that's the American culture that's so corrupt. It's all about me and what's convenient for me. We're going to be judged for the quality of our Christian service on the earth. At the great white, excuse me, the judgment seat of Christ, rewards will be met out and assignments for the millennial reign of Christ will be distributed. And that's what we're marching towards. How we live this life now in the flesh by the power of the Holy Ghost in align with the scriptures. This is qualifying us for the millennial reign of Christ. And the Bible's very, very thorough on that from the Gospels all the way to the Revelation. We're living for more than just the weekend. We're living for more than just our favorite lame city. We're living for the millennial reign. Remember, we're just vapor dew. Some of you are vapor don'ts. I'd rather be vapor do. That way I can do something for Jesus. At the judgment seat of Christ, Christians will be just given their assignments for the millennial reign. And it doesn't mean that just because you were a megachurch pastor, you're going to be over 10 cities. It could be you were a praying grandmother and you get 20 cities in the millennial reign. It could be you were a megachurch pastor and you went to hell. 
could be you had a massive television ministry and yet all you get to do is sweep the dung up in Jerusalem because that's all God really trusted you with. So this isn't about how big of a ministry you grow or maybe I'm just a stay-at-home mom. Don't say just. Uh, Stay-at-home moms will have more rewards than people like me, I'm sure, because they did it with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And they didn't make excuses. Romans 14, 10, and 12 says, But why do you judge your brother, or why do you set him at naught, despise him, and make him of no account your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Strong promise. We shall all stand, all brethren and sisters. And let me remind you, not every human being is a child of God. I hate that modern secular heresy. Not every human being is a child of God. We're all created in his image, but we're not all his kids. If you're lost, you're of your father, the devil. If you have your father, the devil, you're not a child of God. You're going to hell. It's pretty simple doctrine, but doesn't it make everybody feel warm and fuzzy when you're ecumenical to say we're all God's children? No, you're not. If you deny Christ, you're of the devil and you're going to hell. But all of us that are brethren, and that includes sistren, We'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Account of himself. I'm not going to answer for my forefathers. I'm not answering for my wife. I don't even answer for my kids' decisions. I only answer for the parenting I gave them. I have to stand before God by myself to answer for myself. And nobody gets to be my excuse. Nobody. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Everything we're doing every day as a believer is going to be presented before God. I think I should say, Lord, let it burn now. I don't want to even have to look at some of that when I get to heaven. I don't want to replay it. I don't want the angels to be looking at it again. I want it all, just let it burn now. Can we have crop failure now? I don't want to get there and have all that. But there are things I can't wait to see in heaven to show off to the angels and to the heavenly host. And hopefully you have a resume of things you're proud of too. That's awfully weak. I guess you don't have anything yet. But that's why we're teaching this, so you can be more heavenly minded and not so weekend minded. Every born again believer will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, the, uh, the good news is this judgment does not decide eternal salvation. The bad news is it does decide our eternal rewards and thousand year assignments. I'm telling you, a lot of folks will make heaven, but they're not going to make the millennial reign much good. The bad news is it does decide rewards and assignments. This, these rewards are based upon the works we do for Jesus after we have obtained salvation through faith. So 1 Corinthians 3.12 says, Now if any man build upon this foundation, that, that is the gospel, if he builds upon it gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, that is straw, every man's work will be made manifest. Let me ask you this. Are you even building anything with the gospel? Just coming to church doesn't mean you're building anything. I don't care how educated you are, how many degrees you have. Even if you're a medical doctor, you ought to be building something with the gospel. Shame on any believer who takes the prosperity God has given this nation because of its Christian heritage and foundation and uses it to bless themselves and not build the kingdom. 
It may be God looks at you like the rich man and said, behold, in your life, you fared sumptuously. Every one of us is called to build something of the gospel. If you're a stay-at-home mom, if you're a doctor, if you're an engineer, if you're a geologist, if you're an FBI agent, if you're the president of the United States, you're called to build something of the gospel. You're called to make disciples. You're called to be a part of a church and be involved in the church and take a mission trip and pay, pay tithes and offerings. I really think this has been lost. Most folks now, you just show up on a Sunday morning and think, yay me, and you're not going to have anything at that fire. It's going to be way, a hay wooden stubble. That's what your career amounts to in the eyes of God. Wood, hay, and stubble. Everything you work for, everything you labor, all your degrees, all your associates and bachelors and masters and PhDs, it's all wood, hay, and stubble. It's the accolades of man, but it's worthless to God if you don't use it to preach the gospel in some form or fashion. If you don't use it to reach your students or use it to reach your patients or use the money from it to take a mission trip. Amen. One of the reasons I do honor our governor is he is a crazy rich man from his own business that he built himself and he funds the gospel with it and takes mission trips to East Africa with it. And now he's our governor. A man who could just coast the rest of his life on his wealth while everybody does the work of his company, but he uses it to preach the gospel. He's not a preacher, but he gets to preach. Amen. Every man's work shall be made manifest for the day that day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. And we ought to ask ourselves, what sort is it? <laughs> if any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved yet so as by fire. How would you like to have the most illustrative career imaginable, go further than anybody in your household and you get to heaven and God says, dung, it's loss, good for nothing. Yay, you, all those degrees, but you didn't go where I called you to go and didn't do what I called you to do. I don't want that. Any education God's given me, I want it to preach. If it makes me money, I want it to fund the gospel. I don't want it to be about my illustrative career. And if God says go, I want to go. If he says go to Samaria, the part of life I hate, I'm going to go to Samaria and build something for God there. You and I don't have permission to do what we want or to follow the American dream. We're not free to dream. We're free to obey God. That's our only decision. First Peter 1 Peter 1.17, And if you call on the Father, anybody here, that's you? And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. That means be very cautious. Fear God. Tiptoe. Don't declare to him what you're going to do. Say, Lord, if it will, if you will, I will go and do such a thing. Serving God in the wrong place is the wrong way to serve God. Amen. Serving God in the wrong city is the wrong thing. Serving God in the wrong city is not serving God at all. It's serving yourself and your dream. The right thing at the wrong time is still the wrong thing. The right thing in the wrong place is still the wrong thing. It's like the tumblers of a key lock. You can get four out of the five lined up. 
But as they say in marketing, location, location, location. <laughs> if you get every tumbler lined up, I, this is going to sound like I'm making it up, but I'm not. I was actually taught how to pick locks by a guy that was involved in a ninjutsu clan, if you believe that. I, it was a short period of my life, but I worked out with a guy who was in a ninja clan, which is a real thing. And that sounds really hokey now that I think back about it, but I was taught how to pick locks. And you do have to set the tumblers with these wire picks that come in and, and then you have this little pry bar that kind of torques it for you. But you have to set every one of the tumblers according to the position. But if you just get one of them off, you still can't open the destiny of God. And you can have everything perfect, a good kind of church, a good career, the right wife or husband, but you're not in the right place, your life won't open up to you. Location, location, location. Past the time of your sojourning here. I'm not an expert uh, lockpick. I just played around with it. All right. I understand the mechanics of it. I mean, I, I honestly, I'm like, why not just take a hammer to the window? This is way too much work. <laughs> These verses should encourage us to maintain good works with the right attitude and never tire of well-doing. We should maintain good works with the right attitude. Every Christian's work will be tried by the fire of God to see what sort it is. Not all of our works will be rewarded. We have to be content with that. We have to understand not everything we do here is making it to heaven with us. But we want to, as, this, as we get wiser and more committed to Christ, we want that average to increase. It's not just 10% of our works following us. We want 40% and 60%. And maybe the last half of our life, some of you, the last 10% of your life, you can really add some stuff to it. Thank God you make heaven, but we'd like to do more than just make heaven. We'd like to have some rewards and some responsibilities in the millennial kingdom. One reason for day-to-day -day judgment, excuse me, back up. Not all of our works will be rewarded. Some of our works will be found to be wood, hay, and straw. And the difference is attitude. That also, we might say that's another tumbler on the lock. You could be in the right location and be in the right church with the right career and the right spouse, but your attitude stinks because it's not the city you want and it's not the church you want. You still won't open up your destiny. Everything has to line up. Attitude, honestly, is everything. If you got this grumpy, belligerent, sassy, I'm better than this attitude, you're not going any further in life. This may be the reason you're stuck. God resists the proud. And you can have everything going for you, but all God has to do is stick his little finger out and resist you. <laughs> yeah, don't want that. One reason for day-to-day -day judgment and correction is to keep our works qualified for eternal rewards and promotion. If we can see that, if we can see that one of the reasons God wants to judge us and correct us through our boss, our professor, our teacher, our parents, our elders, our pastor, our brother in Christ, if we can see that correction and judgment comes every day to keep our rewards qualified, then we'll receive it. Fix me. I'm having to learn how to receive correction from my children because they are sharp and they have freedom to speak in my home. And it's quite humbling. Yesterday, Lydia got a little sassy. She got in trouble. I was having to deal with her. And she got emotional because she is a girl, and we're teaching our girls how to control their emotions, which can be taught very early. 
the Hebrews said by 13, women could control their emotions. Let that settle in. That meant they had good parenting. And she said, she got in trouble, so she has to say, I'm sorry, and repent. And uh, she said, Daddy, I may get in trouble for saying this. She said, but I don't, I don't ever hear you say I'm sorry a lot. I said, fair enough. I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to spank you. There, I said, I'm sorry. Stand by the paddle. I'm not spanking you for saying that. But it made me pause and think, do I not say I'm sorry enough? Am I so strong a leader in my home that I am above apologies? But to hear that from an eight-year-old, when she's in trouble, and you know she deserves to be in trouble, but this is coming out of her, you do have to stop and take inventory of that. There was a famous preacher who said, um, never apologize to your kids, which I think is just stupidity and arrogance. Because children, if they're born again, are sisters and brothers in Christ too. And if you sin against them, you owe them an apology. Now, yesterday I had done nothing that earned an apology from me. But I said, sweetie, I'm sorry if you don't hear me say that enough or if you don't think I do. But I'll make that better. Now, come stand by the paddle because you're still getting a spanking for what you just disobeyed in. If we reject day-to-day judgment, we will only shortchange our divine promotion, both in this life and in the millennial reign. So we ought to embrace correction. We ought to embrace critique. We ought to embrace God adjusting us and not fall apart over it. Uh, Matthew 25, here's some verses that talk about the millennial reign and their rewards. His Lord said to him, Well done, thou good and joyful and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler of many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. And he said unto him, Luke 19 now, Well, thou good servant, or well done, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, thou, uh, have thou authority over ten cities. Here we see the promise of the millennial kingdom coming, and we see this parable relating that when we're faithful over just a few things, maybe just stay-at-home mom, maybe being a grandmother and praying for the saints and, and just writing cards to those in the nursing homes, being faithful over little things can get you a reward of 10 cities. I don't know how many cities there are in the world. You could probably Google it and find out. Those cities will carry over into the millennial reign of Christ and they will need leadership over them. We're not going to have politicians over them in the millennial reign. We're going to have God-ordained leadership who won't be voted in by a bunch of half-breed pagans divine fiat will declare a holy man or woman of God will be over 10 cities. And it'll be a divine kingdom of whose increase there is no end. That, that's what we have the promise of. And if we realize that and believe it, we'll live way differently today and tomorrow and the next day. If we, we ought to be spiritually minded that so we have one eye on eternity and not just Saturday or graduation or getting married. Revelation 2, 26-27, Jesus said, He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end. So his works are different than just dead works. His works mean that they are the kind of works he would do with the right attitude. To him will I give authority over the nations. So we just jumped from ten cities to nations. And he shall rule, and the word rule there in the Greek is actually poimino, which is to pastor. Now, that's fascinating. 
that you serve the good shepherd faithfully in this dispensation and you overcome and endure to the end, he will give you the authorization to pastor nations in the millennial. That's worth studying, but it is very fascinating. He will pastor them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I have received of my Father. So in his address to the church of Thyatira, Jesus quotes from the stewardship parables, specifically the parables of the talents and the ten pieces of money that he taught in the Gospels. I love that Jesus quotes his own teaching. He draws upon his own doctrine from about 40 years prior, uh, 60 years prior. So the Gospels were about 30 A.D. The Revelation is written about 95 A.D. So Jesus is quoting himself from 65 years prior. But then again, Jesus quoted himself in the Gospels when he'd quote the law of Moses. I love that he draws upon his own work. This time, Jesus directly applies the promises, uh, them promises, sounds like he'll be, but directly applies them as promises. He taught in the Gospels, but directly applies them as promises to the overcoming believers. Part of divine judgment will include promoting some believers to headship over the nations. Now, this is judgment as promotion. And if we get it, if we understand it now, we'll understand it and promote ourselves and serve God better and adjust our attitudes, and God will help us. Hopefully, you're seeing that you probably ought to be adjusting attitudes now, learning to be content, don't bellyache so much. Bellyaching is one of the quickest ways to ruin anything in your life. Remember, he says, well done, good, and faithful. Good means joyful attitude. Not just faithful, good. That's an attitude. We can be faithful and have a sour attitude. Folks go to work every day for a company they hate. And they have no reward for it but a lame paycheck. So attitude is a bulk of what we have to adjust as believers. I can preach. I could pastor this church and hate every moment of it and have no reward, though you be blessed. Or I can look forward to it and it be my lifeblood and there be a reward for me. The work's got to get done anyway. So how about we stop being so American so feminist, so opinionated, so entitled, so cultured by wherever we came from and be more kingdom-minded and do what the gospel says and have something better after we die. Sounds like a good deal, don't it? New Testament rewards. Our rewards are met out in terms of authority and glory. Not only will authority over cities be distributed, but crowns will also be given. Crowns also indicate authority, power, and glory, and these two may be correlated. As in, the more crowns you get, maybe the more cities you overcome. We understand crowns represent a seat of authority or a crown of authority. And when the Bible talks about five crowns as a promotional token, then maybe they are related to whatever kind of authority you have in the millennial kingdom. The New Testament speaks of five crowns, incorruptible crowns given to those who strive to serve God. So that's almost like a baseline crown. <laughs> Just strive to serve them. Ministry helps. Good attitude. That's, that's like your first merit badge. Then you have a crown of rejoicing given to those who win the loss. Not every believer will have one of those. There are some Christians who've never won a single person or even witnessed to a single person. Crown of righteousness 
given to those who finish their race and keep the faith, looking joyfully for the Lord's return. So that adds an attitude to it. You don't just finish your race. You don't just keep the faith. You do it joyfully. Uh, Several years ago, I was on a Delta flight, and there was this old white lady who was our steward, and she was mean. I thought, you are the typical past middle-aged, ugly, mean white lady. And she was so mean and just stubborn, I thought, I need a witness to her. And so I'm going to witness to my stewardess or flight attendant. I know one of those is a sexist term, and I can't keep it straight anymore because the woke people keep changing definition and words I can and can't use. Flying lady, flying lady. (laughs) So I talked to her. I I strike up a conversation with her, and then I recognize her accent. I went, she's from South Southern Africa. She's either she's either an Afrikaner or she's a roadie, a Rhodesian. And so I I said, where are you from? And she says, I'm I'm from South Africa. I said, well, you actually sound like you're Rhodesian. She said, actually, I am Rhodesian, but we moved to South Africa, and that explained her mean harshness. Because honestly, a lot of the whites in Southern Africa do have this permanent scowl upon them. So I get to witnessing to her. I said, well, well, if you're from South Africa, I said, have you ever heard of this person? Yeah. And she actually had been to um, Ray McCauley's church. Now, Ray McCauley, Ray McCauley, Scotsman, but actually he's an Afrikaner. He had a huge Rama church in Johannesburg, and she went to that church. She was a born-again, spirit-filled lady. You'd have never guessed it. Because she was as mean and unhappy. But when you brought the gospel to her, she opened up, but she just didn't know how to kindly deal with anybody on an airplane. I thought, this woman is lost and on her way to hell. She needs Jesus. Find out she'd been saved longer than me, been part of a great revival in South Africa, but no joy. No joy at all. Those who finish their race and look joyfully, if the Spirit talk of chocolate cake brings a smile to your face, that the talk of salvation doesn't, you're not getting this crown. (laughs) How about a crown of glory given to those who live as examples to the flock? Not everybody in this church, even in this sanctuary, is an example to the rest of the church. Just to be honest with you, I look at you, love you all, I'm here for you, do everything I can for you. I would not put every one of you up here and tell the rest of the church to follow you. Because you don't qualify. You might be a testimony of faithfully coming. Yay, that's baseline requirement. But there's a big difference in showing up to class every day and actually getting the degree at a high order. So the crown of glory is given only to those who live as examples to the flock. And then the crown of life given to those who are faithful unto death. That could be martyrdom or it could be you're faithful to the very end. I might interpret that as the crown you get when you finish your race. But we see five different crowns. All right, we've got to move on for time's sake. The time of the tribulation. This is Israel's final judgment. So we have seen the church's judgment the judgment seat of Christ, but the tribulation is actually Israel's judgment. We have previously covered the tribulation as the judgment of the Jews in Pod School, Revelation, Lesson 3. The horrific events of the tribulation will both judge Israel for her rejection of God and bring about her true repentance and acceptance of Jesus Christ. Israel has rejected the entire Godhead as a nation. Now, this brings a point that we need to understand that God sees individually's 
one way and corporate bodies differently. Now, let me just give you as an extreme example. If you were to take a gay pride parade, would the presence of God be in a gay pride parade? No. Would he be grieved and angered at a gay pride parade? Absolutely, because it's a, it's a promotion of rebellion against the very nature of God. And yet, does he not care for each one of those people individually? Absolutely. Does he want to deliver them from demons and molestation and trauma? Absolutely. And confusion and dysphoria? Absolutely. But corporately, they will be dealt with differently than the individual. Individual Jews and in revivals of Jewish history, God was moving and happy, but systematically, as a whole, over history, the Jews, well, they're called Israel, which means wrestles with God. Because what have they done ever since Jacob wrestled with God to get what they want? Israel it always is interpreted reigns with God or prince of God, but it also means to struggle with God. And God named him Israel after he struggled all night with God. And only after did he dislocate his hip did he submit. So Israel has rejected the entirety of the Godhead corporately in its history. In Samuel's day, God says they've rejected me. During the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, they rejected the Son. And during the early church, they rejected the Holy Spirit. And all the apostles went on to say, we dust our feet off from henceforth. We will no longer go to you. We'll go to the Gentiles. So you see the nation of Israel completely reject the entirety of the Trinity. But the tribulation will be such an intense judgment, it will bring about their repentance. As promised and evidenced so many prior times, God will judge Israel by a wicked ruler. During the judgment of the tribulation, it will be the Antichrist judging Israel. Israel will repent and look to the one they pierced. God will deliver them, and in that day, Israel shall become a nation again in one day. These are all Old Testament promises that are so far in the future still that we can't fully see them, so we have to kind of put them together loosely. The judgment of the nations, God's divine judgment continues after the battle of Armageddon. That is the final battle of all nations. The Lord will judge the nations at that time. The Jews and the saints will be excluded from this because they just passed through their own judgment. Furthermore, the Jews are not reckoned among the nations according to Numbers 23, 9. So Joel 3, 2 says, I will gather all nations and will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That means Jehoshaphat means Jehovah has judged. And I will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. So a prophecy in Joel 3 is called uh, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, the valley of judgment. This is the valley of Megiddo, excuse me, uh, Jehoshaphat's valley there. He's going to gather all the nations there and judge them for what they've done to Israel. It is possible that the valley of Jehoshaphat will be a valley formed by, a supernatural, by the supernatural return of the Lord. Some of us ask, how could all the nations fit there? But maybe it's only representatives of those nations. We don't know. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and half the valley will move toward the south. That's Zechariah 14.4. So it's possible this valley of judgment of the nations will be formed by a supernatural return of the Lord. And here the remnant of the nations will be gathered to be judged by the king of kings. Only the king of kings has the authorization to judge every other 
kingdom. So Mark 20, uh, 25, let's read through this quickly. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, this is the Gospels, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations. This is Jesus speaking of what the prophets prophesied. And he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. So the whole allegory of sheep and goats is a reference to corrupt nations and righteous nations, which tells us in the last days there will be nations completely considered wicked and beyond redemption. And there will be nations that are redeemable and have exercised righteousness. If you didn't know right now our nation is being forced into wickedness and all of our righteous deeds are being ignored, trying to exalt the wicked things we have done, along with every other nation forever. Amen. But there will be wicked nations and righteous nations. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for me, uh, for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungry, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, insomuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. And this appears that the church will help the Lord judge, excuse me, will help the Lord in this judgment. This is very likely since the saints will have returned with the Lord from, for the battle of Armageddon. This is a judgment where the nations are judged and he's separating sheep from goats. And I don't know if I put it in this curriculum. Uh, this, some eschatologists say they believe these are the nations being judged for how they helped the Jews during the tribulation because they will be refugees in that day. And so he's saying, you took the Jews in, you clothed them, you fed them, because it sounds like refugee needs. We can apply it to day-to-day -day principles, obviously. But this is an eschatological passage of the end of times, and so we need to understand that first and foremost. But it appears that the saints of God, the church, will help in this judgment because 1 Corinthians says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? When will we do that? Probably beginning here. Again, just more scriptures on judgment showing you how much it's part of the kingdom. And it's further cause to reject any notion of lawlessness and I can do what I want and God has to bless it. That whole movement, as I've come to get my blessing on, God mocks it because it's not the church. It's a bunch of showmanship and neediness. Does he want to bless? Absolutely. Does he command to serve? Most definitely. The nations will be judged based on how they help. They helped and treated the Lord's brethren. This appears to be in regard to those who helped the Jews in the last half of the tribulation as they fled from the wrath of the Antichrist. The help provided is very similar to the needs of refugees. Hunger, thirst, nakedness, sickness, and imprisonment, maybe internment camps. The goats are those who never cared for the Lord's brethren. Now that might also be striking because we have nations right now that absolutely hate Christians. Anti-Semitism is on the rise. I, I find it ironic. Well, right now we're tearing down statues of old American whatever. And right now in Germany, they just erected a statue of Alexander Lenin. Excuse me, Vladimir Lenin. Lenin. 
the first communist dictator who overthrew the czars. West Germany just this week erected a new statue of a man who killed 10 million people. We're not talking about tearing down Robert E. Lee's statue because he was a Confederate general who once said, I wish I owned all the slaves so I could free them myself. No, we're talking about erecting Vladimir Lenin's brand new statue. Actually, it was made in Czech Republic in the 60s, but they took it, said, let's erect it here. Whack-a-doo, that guy did not like Christians at all. God's judging people based on how he treats his people. And whole nations will be guilty and blotted out forever. The goats are those who never cared for the Lord's brethren. Whenever you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren. So they have to belong to Jesus. Evidently, they are even saved nations after the millennial reign of Christ dwelling in the new earth. So I got to go. I'm like, we're out of time and I've got another page to go. The millennial reign of Christ with his enemies destroyed, the Lord will be free to establish his thousand year reign. He will rule from Jerusalem and his leadership is described as such peaceful, universal, authoritative, just and justice, merciful toward the right, excuse me, the poor, righteous, joyful, glorious, removal of the curse, one pure language. This will be a unique season in man's history. Um, Let me skip down to the great white throne of judgment. This throne of judgment is the final place of reckoning for the wicked unbeliever. And this judgment takes place at the end of the millennial reign of Christ and after the final battle with Satan. Revelation 20. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, Jesus, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, that means the lost, small and great stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead. See, we're not talking about dead, no body, dead spiritually. Because the first group of dead are those that are in the earth. And the next group of dead are those that don't have a body. And hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. They are judged according to their works as well to see if they are righteous enough. They will not be righteous enough. And they and death and hell and Satan and his angels will be cast into the lake of fire for eternity. Hell exists up until this moment. And when you die and go to hell, that is only a temporary place until you go to the lake of fire. The lake of fire is not hell, and hell is not the lake of fire. They are two separate spiritual abodes. But even hell gets put into the lake of fire, and that is the second death from which there is no redemption whatsoever. The sea, death, and hell all give up their dead to be judged by Jesus. Remember, Jesus is appointed as judge of the quick and the dead, or the saved and the damned. The unsaved dead are judged according to two books. The book that records their works and the book that records whether or not they receive salvation through Jesus Christ. This is the final judgment and it results in the second death. The first death is dying spiritually unto God. The second death is being cast into the lake of fire for eternal separation from God. This is the final and eternal resting place of the damned, forever separated from God and tormented in perpetuity. This is where Satan, his angels, the fallen angels, and all the wicked will burn forever. Those who have received salvation through Jesus Christ will enjoy eternity in his presence. This is the just and righteous judgment of God. 
Amen.